we've got it dialed down so, so tight. And again, we don't have a very big footprint. We don't have elaborate builds that build outs. We're not, you know, our all in for our franchisees is around $350,000. So there's not that much that goes into the build outs on these locations. If you can give me a vanilla box, I can have you open according to our timelines really within like two months. And, and we've done that plenty of times. We, I mean, we are super proud of that. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today in the show, we have Megan Bynum, the founder and CEO of Magnolia Soap. This was a fun conversation as Megan takes us through how the seeds of this franchise were planted when her daughter was having skin irritation with traditional soap. Megan ended up creating a plant-based alternative, which she's been able to build an experiential retail store around, and now has recently started franchising it. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I think I guess a good place for this story that I thought was interesting was, I know you started this, I think, back in 2016, and it was to solve a personal kind of issue with one of your family members. So do you want to kind of just give us like the origin story there of how you even got the idea for a concept like Magnolia Soap? Yeah. So I started Magnolia Soap out of the need for a plant-based alternative for my daughter. So I am that typical Southern first-time mommy that's like, obsessed about everything my child's eating. Like I'm going to hand make all her food. I'm going to do, you know, that lasted for a little while. It was not realistic and not <laughs> very long, but you know, I was very cognitive about everything that I was putting on her skin. And in doing that, I noticed like, even like the baby lotion that's, you know, in your Walmarts and things like that was just jam packed with all kinds of chemicals and, and ingredients that I couldn't read. And that just didn't set well with my, my first time mommy Part, you know, that I wanted to make sure that what I was putting on my child was the best of the best. And she was highly sensitive to phthalates, which phthalates are present in almost all of the fragrances that, you know, if you walk into certain stores and you get that instant headache or you can smell, you know, those plugins that gives you that headache, that's the phthalates present in your fragrances. And she could literally, somebody could be wearing perfume and hold her and her little body would welt from head to toe. And so, I had to really be serious about what I was using in my ingredients, in my products. And and that's where it started. So my husband came home and he, I'm in the kitchen and he thinks I'm cooking and I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm just making butt paste, you know, because I didn't like the (laughs) my butt paste. (laughs) And so he's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, from there, it turned into like the body butter that I was using on her skin and then the bar soap. And so it really just came out of a desire for a plant-based alternative to the products I was using already on on my child. It's incredible. And how, because like obviously, at least I wouldn't know if I had this issue, I wouldn't know where to start. Like, how do we, I make a natural soap that doesn't have chemicals? So like, what was that process like? And like, did you have help? Like, to me, it sounds like chemistry. Did you hire a chemist or like, what was that 
just the original formulation process, like before even thinking of, hey, I can sell this. Yeah, well, uh, I think it comes A with like that mommy intuition. Like you just kind of like know like what you want on your baby. And so you will do all the research and all the deep diving that you can. I have a science kind of like I, I dabbled a lot in science. Science was my favorite class, you know, all through high school and for the little bit of college I went to. So I would just say that really though it came with just researching in it and just diving in and finding the benefits of shea butter to skin, the benefits of olive oil for skin. And then that's literally how I came up with everything. Every recipe was just formulated out of, of me like, okay, this is what I need to happen on my skin. What body or what oil or butter um, is going to achieve that for me? Yeah. I mean, some of those ingredients that you're saying, I'm like, I've definitely seen those on on like shampoo and body wash models, but I'm going to guess they come with also a ton of chemicals on the back end too. Absolutely. You can't pronounce it. Like, I mean, I'm just not comfortable putting anything on my skin that I can't pronounce. And in my research and in diving in deeper into, you know, the ingredients that are going on your body, typically those ones you can't pronounce are the ones you don't want on your body. No, 100%. Uh, I know there's like in the deodorant space, there's a whole like aluminum was like, found to be really damaging. So now a lot of big like deodorant companies don't have aluminum in any of their product. And there's, I don't know if it's plant-based, but there's some natural deodorant brands that have done really, really well. So it's definitely something that I think most consumers have probably picked up on. And even from things like basically the chemicals in everything, right? Like there's microplastics, there's pans, right? That you use in a stovetop light, depending on what the material is, like it's actually seep like some of those chemicals are seeping into your food all the time. So it seems like a growing movement for sure. Yeah. And that, and that's all it is, is just, it's just being cognitive of everything that you're putting on your skin. I mean, anything you're putting on your skin within 26 seconds is absorbing into your bloodstream. And so I mean, that should make anybody like just be a little bit more aware of what you're putting on your skin. Even like you're talking about the deodorants, we do make an aluminum free and baking soda free deodorant. And a lot of these, uh, we have tons of oncologists and, and cancer hospitals that have picked up our deodorant because it is that clean version. And we also have the phthalate free fragrances, which is again, a known, you know, hormone disruptor and things like that. So it's really just being cognitive about what you're putting on your skin and in your body. Definitely. And I want to get to kind of how you started selling yeah. this uh, originally. But before that, I want to ask, like, I'm looking at like the soaps on your website. And how do you guys get all the colors in there? I mean, there's like some bars of soap that they're, they're almost tie dye. They look really yeah. cool. Uh, <laughs> how does that happen? Another thing is, is my children are, both of my children now are extremely allergic to red dyes. So that was the next thing, aside from the phthalate-free fragrances, was dyes. I had to eliminate dyes in all aspects of our diet. And you'll be, oh my gosh, it will blow your mind how dyes are used in everything you're using. I mean, from a hot dog to like macaroni and cheese, like just, it just everything, like anything that children want to eat. I mean, usually it's going to be loaded with those dyes. And so that was the next thing was eliminating dyes from our entire diet also on your skin. And so we use a product called Mica. And so it's just a powder that that's beautifully colored. Um, it's great for the skin. It's not going to it's not aggressive on the skin at all. And of course, my children are the first ones oh. I test on. I'm like, hey, let's let's try, you know, and so. So uh, you said it's called Mica and that's what can give the kind of tie dye appearance to some of these soaps. Yes, yeah, so we color the soap oils with a product called Mica, a Mica powder. Yeah, it's super cool. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely unique. I've... Yeah, no dyes are ever. 
Yeah. That was, again, just out of a need for something different for my children. They can't have dyes. And so I, I assumed that there was other moms out there that were experiencing the same thing. And literally, that's one of the stories we hear all the time is, you know, if my child goes to Walmart and wants a bath bomb, they're not able to use it because it, it agitates their skin, but they can absolutely use a Magnolia's bath bomb because it's free of all those harmful chemicals. Amazing. And so did you early on think that this was something that you could start selling and build a business around or like what was kind of maybe if it was a moment, an event or a customer even that like planted that seed that like, hey, like we should also sell this, not just use it for like our own family. So my background is in cosmetology and I had hair salons and nail salons. And during all this time of creating these products for my child, I also was looking for a plant-based alternative to the scrubs and butters that we were using in my nail salons because I had a really bougie, if you can imagine, a girly, nice, beautiful, fancy nail salon, you know, where you had champagne served to you. You got to customize your butters and scrubs. So it was very experienced. Yeah. Very much, you know, given the tweak to just your average, you know, nail appointment. And so in doing that, I couldn't find an alternative that was a plant-based clear alternative for the scrubs and butters that was out there in the markets. And so I began creating my scrubs and butters, salts and soaps for the nail salons. And then that's when we kind of dabbled into the retail side of it and was like, hey, people are like all over my products. You know, after they got the service, they were like, I want to take that home and use it. And so we started dabbling in the retail side of that in the nail shops. And then I kind of like went home to my husband. I was like, hey, I've got a really crazy idea that I want to try this kind of like storefront with just the retail products. And so we started in New Albany, Mississippi, which at the time was population 6,500, like low rent. So I didn't have very much risk. And so that's kind of, I was like, let's just try it and see how it goes. We're going to sign like a one-year lease. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, we'll pack up and go home. But turns out that first year we did like $700,000 in retail selling soaps, butters, and scrubs in New Albany, Mississippi, population 6,500. Yeah. Those are numbers I would not have expected. That's uh, that's really incredible. Nor did Yeah. (laughs) That's fascinating. Did you ever try selling it online? Like as a, like, you know, e-commerce nationwide, anything like that? Yeah, we're definitely online. We're we're omni-channel. So we are definitely um, online. We do direct-to-consumer. So online shopping at magnoliasipandbath.com. We started that pretty early. I knew like that's that was going to be, you know, my way to get it out to the masses the fastest. And so we started yep. the online pretty quickly. We also got into wholesaling. So selling to other mom and pop shops that wanted to, to feature our products. And we did all of this out of a 1,200 square foot downtown New Albany facility. So it's fun to look back, especially now, like sitting in, you know, our 10,000 square foot warehouse where we're making everything and shipping it out daily. It's fun to look back and remember, you know, starting doing those kind of numbers in a 1,200 square foot building downtown. You guys have a decent number of corporate stores. So uh, I think it's like 10 or 12 the last time I looked. Yep. So what's the motivation behind that? And, and I asked mainly because you see a lot of like emerging franchises today that, and not that there's, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. There's been super successful franchises with tons of successful franchisees that, the initial concept was just one corporate store and they franchised it from there. Uh, so like you, it can work either way, but 12 is actually, I'd say for an emerging brand, that's a higher number of corporate stores. So 
you know, is there a specific strategy there other than, or is it just like, hey, wait, we know the model ourselves, like we're going to build out our own stores while we're also franchising them? Yes. Yeah, so the idea behind my corporate locations were that I was going to be the guinea pig in testing and putting my money behind all the different markets that were out there. Um, that's the beauty of Magnolia Soap is that this works anywhere. This can work in a college town. This can work in a huge city. This can work in a downtown location. It can work in a strip center and it can even work in a mall location. And I did that testing with my own money and my own skin in the game. And I wanted to be able to say that whenever, you know, a customer came to me or a, a prospective franchisee came to me that I had, you know, this location and this is what they've done. And it's just it's really just showing the proof behind the pudding with what we've got going on and testing it in all these different markets. Because like I said, I started in a downtown, smaller, literally a small, small town. And I was yeah. like, well, this works here, but do, does it work because they know me? Does it work because my family is from here? And so then we went to a college town and it worked amazingly there. And then I was like, well, let's try, you know, like three hours away from me. So we did Jackson, Mississippi, which is a larger demographic, um, a much busier, higher demographic for, you know, as far as their income. I was like, let's try it there. Work mostly yeah. there. Um, so anywhere that I opened a corporate location, I was really just testing the model also, the money that these stores generate was great, too. And so I was like, I mean, as long as I can just duplicate and keep this rolling, I mean, you know, that's great income for my family. And so that's kind of what we've done. And we tested it in new states. And so it wasn't just Mississippi that we tried it in. I, I ventured over into Alabama. I went into Tennessee. And so I was just really testing the markets. I like that. I think it's a really good way for franchisors to, to prove out the concept uh, rather than then almost try to convince franchisees, like the early franchisees to help them prove it out. I've seen a few other franchisors do something similar where they will specifically target markets for their corporate stores that are like, as you said, like one can be their, you know, a downtown urban more location. The other one maybe in like a suburban area in a strip mall and, and so on, kind of as you mentioned, just to see the differences themselves. And that way you guys can speak to franchisees with not only more authority, but more importantly, just like you have data to go off of versus just kind of speculating, right? Right. That's just it. And that, that you know, every decision we make is driven by data. And that's why we wanted to make sure that we had all boxes checked. So when someone came and asked questions, we had the right data for them. Definitely. When, I guess, so, you know, did the expansion of corporate stores at some point, was there an intertwining of, hey, let's also franchise this? Or like, because not everyone thanks to franchise. Some people, you know, uh, who aren't already in the industry, they might have some aversion to franchising and, or, you know, they only think it's for, you know, fast food restaurants, what, what have you. Yeah. What, when did that idea kind of start and what was the early process like of like actually becoming a franchise? I was opening my third location in Jackson, Mississippi, and I got a phone call from a Memphis, Tennessee phone number. And I was like, who could be calling me? Like, what is going on? Well, he just kept calling, kept calling. And then one of my store, my corporate locations called me and she's like, there's this guy in here. He said he's trying to call you. Can you answer the Memphis phone number that's calling you? I was like, okay, I guess this is somebody I need to speak to. So I answered and it, lo and behold, it was someone wanting to franchise. And he's like, I love what you're oh. doing. I see what you're doing. Would you consider franchising? And I was like, I mean, I could, I could definitely franchise. Like that's something we thought about, but we never thought it was going to happen quite as soon as it did. I did. I was definitely still in the, you know, gathering data and, and making sure that I was yeah. making the right decision kind of stage of the business, but he was determined to have a store. And so I was like, well, let's give it a go. And so 
I went to my attorneys and began the process of franchising. And we all know that process doesn't happen overnight. And so we kind of worked through the next eight months of getting everything together that we needed for a franchise. And we opened our first one in South Haven um, in 2020 was our first uh, location that we franchised in South Haven, Mississippi. Amazing. Was the person who called, were they like, they wanted to help franchise or they wanted to buy and open their own location? They wanted to open their own. They had, had definitely no seen the success that I had and, and yeah. my product. They had been customers of, of our brand and they were just like, we want to do this. Let's let's go. Yeah. Well, that's uh, you can't get any better what a confidence than that, right? <laughs> right. That's awesome. Generally, the reception from customers, and especially when you're opening in a new market, is there any bit of an education process to what you are? And I mean, I haven't seen, uh, not that I'm, I mean, I'm like a token millennial. I order 90% of my things on Amazon Prime. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not much of like a brick and mortar shopper by any means. Right. But regardless, yeah, just I'm curious, do you ever think or do you guys ever see just have customers come in because they maybe they just see all the bright colors and they're like, whoa, like, what is this? Or is it, do people seem to get it? And there is there that growing market of consumers who they're looking for these, you know, better alternatives and healthier yeah. alternatives for their skin? Oh, yeah, I definitely think there's, I mean, that market is absolutely crushing it right now as far as, you know, the plant-based alternatives, even in from food to the products you're using on your skin. Our marketing technique is very grassroots. We really want you trying our product and really experiencing that product. We're experiential is what we call experiential retail. And so we're hand making all the products in the store. And so not only, you know, the customer or the, the consumer that would be walking back and see the bright colors, but you're going to look in there and see, you know, a soap maker in the back of the makery pouring soap or hand making bath bombs or whipping up body butter. So it's very experiential. And so that brings in tons of people. But again, it's that grassroots marketing where we're putting the product in their hand and getting the stables out. We, sat, we have an entire month before an opening where we're dedicated to getting in the community and just handing out the products and letting them feel it, touch it and smell it. Because again, we really want you to be triggered by that experiential side of it. And so I feel like, you know, that kind of, that helps our learning curve. It helps people understand like, wow, my skin feel, felt amazing after using it. I've got to get more of that or, or this laundry soap that was, that I use, you know, clean like no other and it smells amazing. And so it's very experiential and very much appeasing to all the senses. And that's what really drives a lot of our consumer base. And we actually did a customer um, survey with our CFO, uh, or our CMO, I'm sorry, CMO. And she sent out a survey to all of our database. And in that database, or one of those questions she asked was, you know, how did our consumer hear about Magnolia Soap? And a lot of it was just the walk by traffic, which blew us away because we were just, I mean, it helped us, you know, redefine our marketing techniques for grant openings. But Really, the data showed us that customers, you know, drive by and see it and they they're automatically tuned in to this is something cool. I want to see what's inside. No, it doesn't surprise me because, yeah, it is like a, almost a newer kind of concept. Right. So we trick everybody. What we see is we're like the baker, you know, that opens the door and you can smell the bread all through town. We call ourselves the air freshener of the city. So we open our doors and <laughs> just kind of you know, takes over. I mean, so you can't walk by and not say, what is in there? Because it's like, it's definitely going to grab your attention. We also have bubbles outside. So it's very playful, very whimsy. And so we're really grabbing your attention and pulling that consumer in the door with just their senses. I could imagine. And so our franchisees, are they ordering like the, uh, let's call it ingredients for the soap and making everything on site? Or are they also buying 
you know, finished complete bars of soap that are ready to go on the shelf. No. So they purchase 90% of their raw materials from corporate and they make all those in their. They make 90% of the products in the store. So all the soaps made in store, all the bath bombs, the butters, the shower oils, all of that is made handmade in the store. The only thing that they are not handmaking in the store are the things that are a little bit more ingredient heavy and like our facial products, because there's a lot of ingredients in those and and you don't want to make, you want to make sure they're mixed perfectly. So our facial products are purchased already pre-made and then also our tanning. We have a a liquid gold sunless tanning that is made in-house and then our shampoo and conditioner bars because it's labor intensive. So, but the majority of the products, I would, I mean, I would say 90, 95% is made in store. Amazing. And is there equipment required for this or is it largely, I don't know, like stirring things up in a big jar or something? How does it work? Not as invasive as you think. When people first get involved with it, they're like, oh my gosh, there's got to be tons of things that you have to have and do this. And really it's not. It's very, it's a small footprint. Like we don't have to have huge locations. Like we can have a very small location. We like, you know, our comfortable range is around 1,700 to 1,900 square foot. But you don't have to have that much space to make these products because You've got big KitchenAids, you've got an Emerson blender, and you're making soap. I mean, it's just, it's really not that intensive as everyone freaks out and thinks like, oh my gosh, you you have to have, you know, an entire factory, obviously, to make all this, but it's really, <laughs> we've condensed it and we've made it very, if you can follow recipes, you can make our products. And so it's very easy and very, very small footprint. That's under 2,000 square feet. That's definitely a super reasonable space. And I would imagine most strip centers could probably fit something like that. So, Oh, yeah, they're excited about that that size. (laughs) How do you, and this is something that a lot, you know, many franchises that are in the business of selling and creating, right, a retail product and, and retail experience. How do you balance the direct to consumer efforts, the wholesaling efforts with the fact that, you know, you're franchising, right? Is there any almost like local fulfillment option or yeah, how does that go from a franchisee perspective? So Magnolia Soap and myself particularly, we're very franchisee centric and the success of the franchisees, the only thing that we are concerned about and we are ensuring that every day that's our focus at a corporate level and even at the franchisee level, we're making them aware of their success. And so I think that we have got a super fabulous plan that we've rolled out with our franchisees where they're able to participate in that growing online presence. And so we have what we call microsites. Obviously, everyone's familiar with those, but the microsite allows for three different options. So they can do in-store pickup from the microsite. So they can go shop the website. They can do an in-store pickup. And so say I picked out, you know, eight or 10 items and it's available and ready to be picked up in store. The second option would be DoorDash delivery. And so we're synced with DoorDash. And so we're able to take that product that you, you know, wanted delivered to your friend for her birthday part for her birthday or for your significant other. And we can deliver it to them as long as there's DoorDash delivery options in your area. And the third option is going to be a where we will ship it directly from our warehouse and our fulfillment center. But you're participating in a 30% commission split, which is our average is what you would get like if you were to sell the product in your store. We're running around 30 minutes. So that's giving you that same profit share, but we're fulfilling it. We're branding it. We're making sure it's, we're taking all that heavy burden of shipping because we all know shipping is a beast and you have to make sure that it's done correctly. It's branded. The product look great. So we handle that for you. And then we give you your 30% split. And as long as they're coming from that website from you, 
that customer is always going to be your customer and you're always going to be participating in that profit split. That's fascinating. So yeah, I figured, I think the details will vary from brand to brand, but that, that's what I mentioned almost like with that, the franchisee is that local fulfillment option. So that that way, as you mentioned, right, they're able to participate in the upside versus it's just two separate channels. And some of the big brands, you know, have gotten a lot of flack in their franchisees on this, mainly the food ones. Like I know uh, there was a big thing a decade ago when like Cinnabon started selling their products in grocery stores nationwide and the franchisees were not happy at Focus Brands. But yeah, we definitely don't want to be in competition with our franchisees. And that's something that I've been very transparent about from the beginning is wholesale accounts, all of these things, they, these are help to help build the brand for your awareness as well. Yep. When we're opening stores that the brand has already had a presence, a small presence, but it's already had a presence there. And people are a little bit more aware of it than they would have been if we were to just walk straight in there and them never hear about us. And so we've been really cognitive about the awareness to our franchisees and making sure that they feel like, you know, we're not in competition with them because we all want to be on this journey together. And that's a great point too, that those other channels do help build the brand. So then, yeah, when someone sees uh, the store and the sign on the store, they, it's not the first time they're seeing the brand. Right. And maybe that compels them to walk in. And yeah, I mean, at scale, it, it gets interesting. Like I know um, interest, this is just a random aside, but Tim Hortons, they actually at times, because they sell K-Cups right nationwide for their coffee, but they'll, in America at least, where you know they still have room to expand, Sometimes they'll pick the market just based on what K-Cups like are getting purchased the most in a certain area. So like, oh, like people here clearly like Tim Hortons more than other markets. Like we're going to pick here to to open up the next store, one of our franchisees. So there's definitely validity to kind of that whole concept. So it's cool that you're able to do that in some respect already as well. Yeah. And I mean, again, like you said, it's just data. It's just it's giving you more data for that area. And like like that example you just gave, you know, we did that with an area. We had somebody came in that they were just. I don't care where I open. I just want to be able to open in Mississippi. So we went and looked at all of our wholesale accounts. So we're like, we've got a really strong wholesale account in this area. Like, I mean, they're killing it. I don't think it'd be a bad idea to try a store there. And sure enough, it's one of our top performing stores nice. a year later. And it, and I think it was generally because it already had like that brand presence. Yep. Yeah, That that's awesome. Uh, and, and on the franchise front. So, I mean, you guys, you know, like you said, only been franchising for a few years now, but uh, you know, already had, I think, what is it, 12 to 16 stores open? Oh, we've got 42 locations open. Oh, wow. So you guys have opened a lot this year then. Wow. Oh, yeah. wait, I, I was, I've got like a little spreadsheet. So were you at 21 locations to, at the start of the year, correct? Right. Yeah. So you've doubled this year. That's, that's fantastic. Nice. We've got another probably, I think, 15 sold. So it should be, you know, around the 62-ish mark, you know, 65 mark. That's rolling into next year to get those stores open. And what's that process been like from the units sold? And this is something that I've started to pay more attention to is how many units are actually getting opened versus just the sold. Because I think in the industry, you know, there's obviously brokers and this and that and that because like the franchise is sold becomes this metric that everyone talks about. But at the end of the day, if they're not getting open, it doesn't help you, right, as a franchisor. <laughs> we're we're hyper-focused on that. I don't have any stores that are not opening. We're not going to be selling, you know, 10 packs and things like that. We're very much like three is the max we'll go. And we've only sold like one or two of those. What we talk our franchisees into getting that first one open and then let's reevaluate in six months and talk about two and three because I want to make sure your success is top-notch. Also, I don't want to sell 
to a franchisee and they're not a great franchisee and they don't understand business like they should and they're doing more harm to the brand than they would be helping. So we're very cognitive and very hyper-focused on the locations that we've sold their opening and they're getting stored. They're absolutely on the path to open within six months and they all are. We have not had any that have, we've sold that have not opened within our six month time frame. And so we're very proud of that number because I know like you're talking like other brands that have sold franchisees, but how many are franchise locations, but how many of those are actually getting open? And we're not that brand. We're never going to be that brand. That's impressive. Six months. That's, that's a really swift opening timeline. So well, we've got it. We've got it dialed down so, so tight. And again, we don't have a very big footprint. We don't have elaborate builds that build outs. We're not, you know, our all in for our franchisees is around $350,000. So there's not that much that goes into the build outs in these locations. If you can give me a vanilla box, I can have you open according to our timelines really within like two months. And and we've done that plenty of times. We, I mean, we are super proud of that. We've honed in on all the aspects and we take over from real estate to the design from, we handle it all for you. So you literally sign up and then you just get it on our process and we've got you, we've got a store open in three months. That's great to see. Yeah. I really just think once the franchisee is like in the system and it's, it's no longer this franchise development slash sales process, it's all about like, okay, like how can we just transfer that knowledge and get them open and operating at a high level as fast as possible? Well, so going forward here, what, what uh, you know, I don't know if you have thought this far ahead, but like, is there a goal in your mind for the brand as far as like number of locations that you want to get open or I don't know, international expansion, you know, what do you have kind of a master plan that you guys are striving towards? Yeah, so we're just really focused on, you know, getting our locations open and as successful as possible. So we're really focusing on 2024 on getting the average the average store unit volume up. And so we're really focused yep. in on making sure the, the franchisee success is priority. And from there, like, you know, I think the growth is just going to happen as it already has organically. And that's one thing that Magnolia prides ourselves on is that every bit of this has been an organic growth. We just introduced brokers in July and I've only done probably two or three broker deals. The rest has been brand fans, people that have, you know, shopped our product and loved it and opened a store and then told their friends about it. And now they're all wanting to open stores. So that's something that I'm super proud of is that we've had this huge organic growth just from other franchisees validating for the brand. And so we're really, again, just hyper-focused on making sure that that franchisee success is top of mind. 2024, we're projecting around 50 locations that should open. So we're going to have some some strong growth next year too. So doubling what we've done this year. And I just think it's just onward and upward from there. I mean, I think we're going to, obviously with the franchisee growth should come, you know, the e-commerce growth side, the wholesale side. So we're just preparing for all of that internally. We've got an amazing support system. We've got an amazing internal infrastructure team. And so we're just we're just focused on making sure that that franchisee is successful as they can be and validating and opening more locations. And that's one thing that we have, we get, we're super proud of is it, our first 10 franchisees, they've all opened number two and number three on their locations. And so to me, that's a validation in itself. That's always the, one of the best signs is when the franchisees are just opening more units. And that's exciting to hear too, that the, the 50-ish can be open in 2024. So sounds like uh, a lot of exciting things ahead. And yeah, so this has been a fun conversation, Megan. Really awesome to learn about your brand and kind of how it got started. Is there a good place online where if someone wants to either follow you or Magdalia Soap and even, you know, 
they're interested in the franchise? What are the best spots online to do so? Yeah, so they can obviously go to our website, magnoliasoapandbath.com, and you can find information for franchising there. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and also LinkedIn at magnoliasoapandbath.com. You can also personally follow me on socials. So you can go to um, Facebook. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn at Megan Snyder Bynum. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. We'll plug some of those in the show notes, folks, so you can get in touch with Megan of the brand and follow along. And yeah, Megan, seriously, thanks again. It was really cool to learn about uh, your company and look forward to talking soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.